Welcome. Welcome, listeners. Thank you for choosing to join me for the first edition of Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. I'm your host, DJ Moran, and before we go any further, the informed consent disclaimer. Material presented and opinions expressed on this website and in these podcasts you're on are simply those of the individual participants that do not represent the profession of psychology or represent expert advice. They do not speak for acceptance and commitment therapy or any other therapy in general. These materials are for entertainment purposes, for professionals interested in modern cognitive behavior therapy and behavioral analysis. This information is no substitute for reading primary sources and gaining supervised therapy experience from a professional. Listen at your own risk. Thank you, Steve Baker. I'd like to take a second to let you know about me, your host. I'm DJ Moran, a licensed clinical psychologist certified in um, school psychology and a board-certified behavior analyst working in Chicagoland, USA. I have my Ph.D. in clinical and school psychology from Hofstra University. I received my degree in 1998 under the supervision of Kurt Salzinger, and I started to consider myself a behavior analyst in 1992. And I was dyed in the wool by Rich O'Brien that particular year. I was introduced to acceptance and commitment therapy at the annual meeting of the Association for Behavior Analysis in 1994 through a presentation done by Robin Walser, and Steve Hayes. And then I took my first ACT workshop in Reno in 1995. These were the days when you had to order context press books through snail mail and get uh, ACT information by attending yearly conferences and, you know, walk to school uphill both ways and all that jazz. So I'm really honored and grateful to be a participant in the third wave behavior therapy community. I am the director of the Family Counseling Center in Chicagoland, and we're a division of Trinity Services, a large and effective nonprofit organization in Illinois. And I also founded the Mid-American Psychological Institute, where I work with other behavior analysts, including Patty Bach. I've been asked a few times, why are you doing this podcast? And I just usually answer, because I think it'll be fun. My plan is to present material about cognitive behavioral therapy and clinical behavior analysis. And this might include recorded lectures about behavior analysis and ACT. It'll include interviews with interesting people in the field. And I might present other interesting stuff to listen to, relevant music, um, session snippets, or other things I might think, well, you know, will be cool to listen to. Uh, One of the cool experiences I had at the recent uh, ACT Summer Institute here in 2007 was attending Kevin Polk's presentation. Um, He did an excellent presentation on uh, Act Gone Wild and talked about doing acceptance and commitment therapy um, at a VA with folks that are dealing with concerns related to post-traumatic stress disorder. And I had a chance to interview him after his presentation. It's July 17, 2007, and I'm here with Kevin Polk, who works at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Togus, Maine. He just finished giving his wonderful talk, Act Gone Wild, an intensive approach to getting veterans suffering with trauma back to life. And I'm just going to ask you, Kevin, uh, will you give um, a brief overview of your treatment program at the VA? Oh, boy, a brief overview. This will be fun. We do four and a half days a week uh, of ACT programming. The beginning, well, we run through four themes. The first theme is about people struggling and using solutions that don't work. Our next theme is then about people getting hooked and unhooked from things that come up in their lives. 
Another theme is about taking things along with you while you move toward valued life directions. And yet another theme is noticing what's going on in your mind and your body while doing all the three other things that I just mentioned. Okay, neat. Um, how many folks do you get going through the VA per year? About, well, in the last year, it's been 180. Next year, it will probably be 260. Okay, neat. And um, the VA and the folks that you work with and for find it uh, successful? They find it very successful. Uh, because PTSD veterans, this is a nuance of the VA system. They pay more money for people diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. So if you can think of the VA as a big insurance company, whereas a usual vet might get, you might get paid four or 5,000, they'll pay 42,000 for a PTSD vet. And so a portion of ours, not all, but a portion of ours will be those $42,000 a year vets. Doesn't take very many of them to bring a lot of money to the Togus VA, so they love us. Cool, cool. I think uh, one of the things that probably helps you be so successful is that you're taking what, uh, what you learned at different ACT workshops and by reading the book, and you make it your own, and you're making it fun. Um, some of the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, how, how did you make it so fun and interesting for the folks? And I also wanted to know if you wouldn't mind going through some of the exercises. I'm going to post, um, post an exercise up there. You have a, uh, like a Venn diagram. One circle says mind, the other circle says body, and then there's some overlap there. Um, if one were to just look at the mind-body uh, Venn diagram, it might look like it needs a little bit more explanation. What do you do once you put that up on your whiteboard and you show it to the folks? Well, inside of the mind, that's where most of, in a word, the action takes place. First, the physical action takes place in the body, and the body is always in the present moment easy way to get to the present moment. Inside the mind, the mind can travel to the past, it can travel to the future, it can stay right here in the here and now, it can judge, it can evaluate, uh, it can describe. Describe or judge and evaluate are the two separations there. And we're just showing that the rules of the mind, nothing ever leaves the mind, are different than the rules of the body where things do come and go of right. the physical world. So we're showing the rules of the mind that rules don't apply. Right. Once you got it, you have it. You have it forever. You can't get rid of it. And that's the main point we want to get across. Okay. All right. Neat. And I uh, asked just a little bit about the fun. It seems like you have some kind of certificate program. <laughs> yes. Fun. I forgot to mention that. I have the act done in groups is fun. I have yet to hear about somebody doing a act in a group format that didn't end up being fun. It's lively. It gets people going. So we naturally start to have fun with that. And we've just been working at creating this three-group-a-day program for almost two years now, well, 20 months. And it, it's, it's just infectiously fun. And so the veterans start having fun. They start having fun with their trauma memories, literally. It's a weird process, but it happens. They have fun with their trauma memories. Oh, yes. I am not kidding you. We will have people putting their trauma memories up on the board, 
sort of laughing about them, sort of, oh, yeah, that comes up a lot. You know, that comes up four times a week. But notice the trauma memory is now out on a whiteboard in front of them. They're dealing with the trauma memory out there. They're not having to buy it. They're not having to have it inside of them. They've taken it outside. They can then laugh at it. I imagine then that these trauma memories become um, accepted and diffused through those kinds of exercises. And I also wonder if there's um, there's a portion of, of, of what you do there that helps out a lot, and it seems to be this moment-to-moment focus on values, even in the small little events. And uh, I thought that you really t- uh, uh, kind of hammered home an important part about the values piece in ACT uh, during your talk today, that it's not like you just assign yourself a sheet and say, these are my values, and then leave it there. Every day, every moment, you reorient your clients back to what they did that was value-directed. Yes. We took Kelly Wilson's 10 areas from his Valued Life questionnaire. We just used them because they were seemed to be a great list of values. Uh, and we simply asked veterans, well, the first thing we do is say, don't just read the list and go off and watch where you take your body for, you know, 24 hours. It's always 24 hours. And when you come back in 24 hours, we're going to look at this list again, and we're going to see where you took your body and how it lines up with these things. One, let me tell the audience, that is a self-as-context exercise that we're using in the service of their values. And it, they quickly see, oh, I am doing stuff for values. I called my child today. I brushed my teeth today. I got out of bed today. I came to this group. They always come to They're in the group. So right. I came to the group. And all of those behaviors fit with values. Yeah. And so, and every day we do that. I imagine that would be a good um, piece of advice for any therapist, whether it's in groups or individual therapy, PTSD, and all the different contexts. Uh, I really found that to be probably the most informative and you know, one of the first times I've heard someone talk about it, day by day, moment by moment, picking up a phone and getting ready to call someone, even if you chickened out and didn't do it, that was directed towards values at that moment. Brushing your teeth is you know, in self-care and hygiene and, and to remind the person that every moment you, know, you can act in a value-directed way. And it goes back to our question. Uh, let me see if I can, let's see. Given what is important to you, what am I willing to do and experience in this moment that will move me in that direction? Some version of that statement is repeated to the veterans. What's on the board, we say it, we just go over it. It's the choice between moving toward your values and well, spending time moving toward your values and spending time struggling with suffering, it's a moment-to-moment choice. In 24 hours' time, it will always add up to 24 hours. Those two categories add up to 24 hours. We're just asking people to notice them. Awesome. And um, kind of piggybacking on that, you have uh, something called the uh, three-minute intervention that you're working with. Um. Yes, we do. We have... I have to tell the story here that that my postdoc last year has gotten a job and worked some last year in primary care. He quickly noted that the number of times he gets to see somebody in primary care is once. He has one session with them. And that's not an hour session. That's a 10 or 15 or 20 minute time with them. How can you do ACT in that 
that amount of time. So we have sat around and come up, and the shortest we came up was what we call the three-minute act intervention, where in sitting with somebody, we've sort of heard what their value is. We've, they're struggling with some health condition. It's usually a health condition in primary care. And we're saying, well, how does this struggle with this health condition get in the way of you moving toward what you value? At that point, most people would expect, well, now they're going to give me a prescription. He doesn't. He simply says, well, notice when those moments come up that you're going to take not be able or you think you're not going to be able to move toward your value because instead you're struggling with this, this health issue, this thing. And just notice that. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to call you up and, and just check in with you on what you noticed. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, I really appreciate you spending the time today. I really appreciate you coming to ACT SI3 and giving everybody a chance to get to know what you're doing up at the VA. It's really great. If you get a chance to uh, see Kevin in any future uh, SIs, make sure you get the opportunity and uh, look out for his post on the listserv. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thankfully, uh, Kevin was an excellent interviewee, and I appreciate your patience, dear listener, with my meager interviewing skills. I am sure I used the word neat more times in that interview than Phil Donahue or Barbara Walters did in their entire careers combined, so it was a real pleasure talking with Kevin. Um, Some of uh, Kevin's ideas have been posted on this podcast's website, including that mind-body Venn diagram that I talked about and some of the other materials that he mentioned. So I put together a document for that, and you should be able to download that from the same website that you got this podcast. I was also fortunate to meet up with Steve Hayes at the ACT SI, and he was nice enough to talk with me. Um, If you hear folks talking in the background, it's because we're in the hotel lobby. Um, You can distinctly hear Hank Robb laughing in the background, and we'll hear from him and talk about his views on spirituality in future podcasts. In my interview with Steve now, uh, we discuss the future of ACBS and the place that RFT and ACT are taking in the psychology world. And this is part one of that interview. Okay, this is DJ Moran, and I am with Steve Hayes at the Acceptance and Commitment Therapy um, Summer Institute 3, 2007, here in Houston. And uh, a couple of questions for him. I'd like to know uh, what your thoughts are of the convention and uh, where you see um, our organization going in the next few years. Well, content-wise, the convention's awesome. I and mean, I've seen some really nice pieces of work, and there's a sense of energy, compassion, connection, community, which is one reason why we do these things. And it relates to where I see the society going Uh, ACBS uh, is not about trying to create another organization that is internal inwardly focused Uh, the ACT and RFT work don't stand apart from the disciplines in which they grew up and the larger discipline in which they're housed they grew up inside uh, behavior analysis clinical behavior analysis and behavior therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, cognitive therapy on the more clinical side, and in a broader sense, empirical clinical psychology, in a broader sense, psychology itself. And so it's housed in these these multiple levels of nested uh, organizations. And even beyond that, behavioral science, because the reason we call it contextual behavioral science, it isn't even goes beyond 
psychology, I believe, into all of the sciences that are concerned about human behavior. Given that, it would just be a mistake for us to think that what we really need to do as an organization, but beyond that just as an intellectual and clinical enterprise, is to create a kingdom and then look inward and write articles for ourselves and, and so forth. Really, we're a transformational symbi symbiote. You know, we're not a parasite, but we are uh, destined, I believe, to be uh, inside other organizations, other uh, aspects of the discipline, and to transform them. Because the real purpose of it is to create a psychology and a behavioral science more generally that's more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. So where ACOS is going is everywhere. And we've sort of, as a board, consciously decided that we are going to house our conventions and so forth in such a way that they leverage off other organizations. It, we're hoping the next one will be in association with ABBA, probably immediately following the Association for Behavior Analysis Convention. And we're going to focus on putting our articles and so forth in more and more and more mainstream journals. And... Uh, We've made some decisions here. Uh, the board's decided not to adopt an ACBS journal, for example. So we could have done it. We had a publisher who really was excited about doing it and offered the funds needed to do it, and we decided not to. And in the, So I view us as being part of uh, the development of science and behavioral science, and, um, and people can come knowing that here, knowing that uh, this is not a a black hole, a, you know, a gravitational force that is designed to pull all their energies into some sort of uh, self-focused guild or uh, cult or odd intellectual community. It's a, a way of empowering people to go out into their clinics, schools, communities, uh, associations, and uh, wherever their work takes them to uh, take what's of value here there. It seems like a lot of folks have adopted the relational frame theory approach and acceptance commitment uh, data and have been applying it. You're talking about the growth. And I'm also wondering, because it grew out of the behavior analysis tradition, and behavior analysis tends to be cautious about adopting new principles, new ideas, um, and rightly so in a lot of ways, I'd like to know your opinion about um, the just general behavior analysis community and its integration and development with regard to relational frame theory and acceptance and commitment therapy. Well, it is a conservative and cautious area in one sense, but in another sense, it's a very bold area. I mean, after all, the, found, the founders of behavior analysis are about as bold and courageous of folks as you could imagine, inventing not only no ter new terms and preparations, but new methodologies, new ways of doing science, etc., and carrying it into all kinds of uh, uh, places. I mean, behavior analysis has gone into... Uh, places other folks have not been willing to go, and because of that have, has, has grown and succeeded uh, uh, when it's been able to take hold. But it did have this problem, which is getting over the hump of human language and cognition itself. We think relational frame theory takes us over that hump. Not that it's the ultimate answer to everything, but it's a progressive, empirical approach that allows the most complicated forms of human cognition to be dealt with in an experimental and not just an interpretive way. Uh, built into the tradition of behavior analysis is because it's a, a, de a designed to be a bottom-up account and one that is meant to be uh, 
continuously developing and comprehensive, you don't throw away old principles when you get new ones. And uh, so the, the, despite the fact that it's a liberal tradition by its aspirations and, and in its early development, it's conservative because if you're going to be uh, committed to the accumulation of evidence without throwing away anything old, you have to show that when new developments come that they comport with, fit with, enhance, build upon what was already there. RFT and ACT do that, but it, you have to engage in a conversation to see it because uh, relational operants, if they exist, I think we now have the data, I'm willing to pretty much say they clearly do exist. I think we have enough studies, we can now say that. A year ago even, I w two years ago, I wouldn't have said that. I would have said we think they do. Uh, appear to be operants that operate on other behavioral processes. They change how classical conditioning and operant conditioning work. And if that's true, it has such profound implications for the field that it's going to be very hard. It's going to take some time. Uh, in, in the basic area, it means the animal preparations are, are too heavily emphasized because even if you can establish relational operants in them, it's too difficult to do it and study what re we really need to know now. The question of can you establish it in non-humans would only be of interest if you could then use that preparation to ask the important questions. And it's pretty clear that in areas like transformation of stimulus functions, metaphor, and so forth, by the time you were able to train a relational operant, if you could, in an animal preparation, you would literally the lifetime of the organism would prevent you from asking the more complex ones. So it means people have to turn away from as much of an emphasis on the animal lab that's hard. And uh, basic behavior analysis uh, uh, it really has to do a, a gut check here. I think that's going to take a long time. What that tells me is the future of RFT immediately is inside applied behavior analysis, in behavior analysis, and inside uh, cognitive sciences in the, the basic analysis, showing that it has a connection to basic cognitive issues and trying to get them to use the preparation and understand it. But on the, and the behavior analysis itself, I think it's going to be the, uh, the language training issues and so forth where most of the things are worked out. Fortunately, the basic issues are worked out enough that we can now do what really needs to be done inside applied preparations, learning how to train relational frames, learning how to train metaphorical uh, reasoning or, or a lot, you know, logical reasoning and so forth. So... Uh, I think that once that catches on, it's going to go very fast because there's nothing to prevent an applied behavior analyst from using RFT. And the final thought, ACT, you know, is, is most relevant to clinical behavior analysis. People are going to need to do a little bit of work to see how it's relevant to the other kinds of things that applied behavior analysts do. So there's a little bit of a hitch there. So I don't see any real great... Uh, closed-mindedness. I think people are open and looking. In some corners, yes, but it, there are some uh, problems that are historical and are due to the organization of the field. And those won't be overcome quickly because that's the nature of those kinds of problems. really want to thank Steve for his willingness to let me interview him. I also want to thank Kevin Polk for allowing me to interview him as well. And my voiceover man, Steve Baker, for so eloquently dictating the informed consent disclaimer. But most of all, I really want to thank you for tuning in to this, the first edition of Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. Thanks again.